It's my absolute pleasure to welcome you all here today, alumni, current students, uh, parents, uh, to, to the occasion, uh, to, to, to listen to Lord Daniel Finkelstein, who, of course, is a weekly columnist, leader writer, and associate editor of The Times. Before joining the paper in 2001, he was advisor to both Prime Minister John Major and Conservative leader William Hague. Daniel was named Political Commentator of the Year at the Editorial Intelligent Comment Awards in 2010, 11, and 2013, and most importantly of all, graduated from the LSE with a BSc in economics between 1980 and 1983. Um, a couple of disclaimers. Uh, there will be a free drinks reception at the back uh, after the event. And second of all, if you are partial to using Twitter, uh, the hashtag is LSE Sourcewe. And if you've got friends or family who couldn't make the occasion, the podcast will be available later on. So it's an absolute pleasure to welcome you here. Thank you. Can you have a round of applause to welcome us. So, so the only real place to start is asking you about your time at LSE sure. uh, with a very generic question. Did you enjoy it? Oh, yeah. I, it, the, the LSE's played a really important uh, part in my life, I think. I mean, uh, it was the place where I made a lot of stupid errors and I didn't do very much work, uh, I have to say. Um, and I do remember, recall once uh, knocking on the door of my tutor at three o'clock in the afternoon and finding he was asleep. Um, and so there are, there, are, there are certain things that, you know, I could criticise the institution for at the time, but it was an incredible place to study. There were so many amazingly interesting people. And even then, although I know it's much more now, there was a lot of international. Um, there was a lot of international students, and it was really interesting uh, atmosphere. You know, but the politics in particular that I learned about at the LSE has stuck with me the whole time. And I don't think I would have had the career that I've had if I had come, gone to any other university or college. Well, so I was about to ask about this because obviously I have a bit of self-interest, being the general secretary of the union. So was, was student union sure. life something you got involved in? Yeah. Do you have I, any abiding memories of... Okay, so I'm, I was not the uh, General Secretary of the Student Union, despite running to be the General Secretary uh. of the Student Union. Um, and um, really, a, a really important moment for me came when I, I decided in my first year at university that I was going to set up a debating society, mainly because I lived at home uh, and I wanted something that would kind of engage me with the life of the university and I wasn't sure why, where it was. So I thought we'd do, I'd do this and we started and I thought, how do I make this debating? How do I get really good people to come to the college? And I thought, well, Bob McKenzie, who was a political commentator, was a professor of sociology, and he was really quite a big figure on television at the time. I'll go and see him. So I went to see Bob McKenzie and I said, I'd like to do this debating society and involve um, students in it. And I'd like to invite people from outside and I'd like you to be the patron of it so that I can cite you to gain you know, MPs or people. And he said, uh, he looked at me and he said, I'm not going to do it. So I was a bit taken aback. And he said, I won't do it because <coughs> the LSE has a, <coughs> the LSE student union at that time had a policy of no platform for, <coughs> for racists and for, um, and for sexists. That was the fact. And he said, that policy um, has been used to ban Keith Joseph, who was the Conservative cabinet minister from the university. Uh, and until you remove it, I don't feel confident, encouraging any contact of mine to come and speak at the university. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought he was right. Uh, and so I began a student union campaign um, to remove that policy from the student union. Not obviously because I wanted the place to be full of people being racist or sexist, but because I thought free speech was important. And uh, during the time while I was doing it, the policy was used against a, 
a, a dance troupe called Hot Gossip who appeared on Kenny Everett's show, um, who were accused of being both racist and sexist. Um, it was used against Timothy Raisin, the Home Office Minister, who was chased off the premises, um, and it was used against the Israeli ambassador, who's, who wasn't the invitation wasn't because Zionism is racism. So. Um, <clears throat> Uh, the campaign sort of gathered momentum and eventually we did actually succeed in removing, uh, in removing the policy. But in the process, <clears throat> I, when I joined the LSE, I actually was a member of Hendon South Labour Party. Uh, and um, during the process of that, it pushed me out of the Labour Party and actually out of the left uh, because I, um, I thought the issue, I still think, actually, the issue of free speech is fundamental, particularly in academic institutions. And... Um, I couldn't believe that, that I found no other defenders in that group. Um, and it was profoundly disillusioning, but also it, it inspired me in lots of different ways politically. So um, that, was, that moment that happened here was very important to my well, political I, formation. Yeah, I certainly believe that stuck with you because you wrote an article, uh, was it late October last year, about this year's Students' Union. Yeah. And you were a, kind of a critical friend in your piece and that your kinds of steer us on the right path. Was that as a result of this genuine kind of libertarian take on free speech? Yeah. Or was it, was it just an affinity with the union that still no, stuck with you? I suppose I thought it was important because LSE really matters to me and because I think that if this place isn't the place where people can make speeches of all sorts and uh, express themselves in all sorts of different ways, then nowhere is. Uh, I was actually profoundly sympathetic. I'm, I don't want to interfere in student union politics. It's the last thing I want to do. But I was profoundly sympathetic to the position you found yourself in. Um, and... Um, and I felt that the university had made a mistake, which actually, to their huge credit, I think, I, may, I haven't got this wrong, but I think they've acknowledged uh, in the way that they'd interpreted the law. I thought it was important in the light it shed on legislation that um, any legislation in that, that attempts to curb free speech can then be used to do things that are not intentional and that it couldn't possibly have been the intention of the law that people shouldn't be allowed to wear those T-shirts and shouldn't, and shouldn't be. Uh, so I, I, I wrote that article because I think LSE matters in itself and because I thought it illustrated an important point. That's fair enough. And I, I guess f from our point of view at the time it was a matter of, of tactics and how we implement our personal politics but also uh, a sense of institutional responsibility. And I, I've been digging around in, in the archives of our student newspaper uh, between the years 1980 and In your final year, you wrote an article called The Union You Deserve, and you, you talked about the importance of ideas and ability for student union leaders as, as a key kind of tactic, competency yeah. rather than personal politics or party politics. <coughs> and you also wrote an article in, in the paper in that same month calling for a demonstration, a public demonstration for a comprehensive grant system for over-16s. So I'm kind of interested... Uh, how you reconcile those two tactical well, let's differences. Take, take those two things. I mean, the, the first thing was that I believed <coughs> at the time, and it's sort of akin with my politics, which has always been kind of centrist uh, politics, um, that the, the sort of competence of the student union um, was... Um, was very important in terms of the services it provided. I think this is building is amazing. Mm. Um, and um, as, as a facility for student unions, um, and the facilities for students really matter, whether the coffee bar is any good, whether the bar is any good, whether societies are supported strongly. I thought those things really mattered. And instead of it, the, the student union seemed to be more concerned with whether they could influence Colonel Gaddafi. And I just sort of thought... <laughs> 
why isn't going to make any difference. And I made us, we were talking about this before I made a slight jibe that, that, you know, we'd have all these campaigns on CND, which was happened to be the cause at the time. It was regarded as critical what the LSE student union position was on cruise missiles. <laughs> and we were, um, and uh, I, you know, I said, uh, basically, I said that Labour would get in. I think I said it was 1987, but Labour would get in. And when they got in, they wouldn't be in favour of uh, unilateral nuclear disarm, which turned out to be, of course, true. Um, so, um, so that was the, the reason for that. The, the, the other story, which is the Grant's um, position, is quite interesting. I, for a long time, politically, uh, it was my view that um, the SDP and people like me who'd belonged to it, because that's what the, you know, it was my political party for a long time, uh, would attempt to moderate the left. Uh, and uh, we'd be a part of the left, but always a critical friend. And so you know, the left would want to have a demonstration. We would have you know, a vigil. Mm. Right, uh, and that was, and and I and I essentially to say I grew out of it would be would be offensive to people who still hold that position. But I, in the end, concluded that position was wouldn't work. I I I, um, I got when I was a journalist in my first job as a journalist. There was a big strike at this company called VNU Business Publications, and it was a really stupid strike. And I went back to work, and as I sort of crossed the picket line, um, of sort of. A picket line of middle-class journalists working in Soho, you know, <laughs> the most mobile market, in the, technology journalists actually, rising about the internet, working in Soho. Uh, I just thought to myself, it is a fact of my life that I'm all the time trying to pretend I'm in the left, uh, when actually I spent all my time opposing <laughs> every yeah. stance that it takes. So perhaps I need to draw a conclusion from that. So you've just sort of caught a snapshot um, of that particular, yeah. what I would regard now as naivety. It's interesting. I, I don't know if, if there are current students in here, but I'm sure a lot of what was just said will resonate. The more things change around LSE, they tend to stay the same. We have a motion today in the UGM, in the general meeting, which we hold once a week, which is to condemn the Russian involvement in, in Crimea. And one of the points of resolution was to ask the general secretary to write personally to Vladimir Putin. And, yeah. and, and, and you laugh, but it, it's that sense of... It doesn't uh, work. The prime minister's done that. It doesn't yeah. work. So, so, I mean, what little old me is going to achieve, who knows? But... Uh, it's nice to see things haven't changed. I, I, I'm going to go back a bit now into, into your family and, and your background because sure. that, that clearly from certain things you've written, not just in, in the Jewish press, but also in, in the Times, you're quite obviously affected by in terms of, in terms of your career choice and whatever. In, in your maiden speech to the House of Lords, you spoke of that family history. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the thing is, the, I said the position of free speech was influenced by the fact that I'm a, ch- I'm a son of two refugees from different... Um, Backgrounds, and, and, and I think I said this in my maiden speech in the House of Lords that somebody asked me, um, you know, in a, in some, at some meeting, uh, you know, don't you bemoan uh, the lack of big ideas in British politics? And my response was, you know, the big ideas of this world drove my parents out of their home, it killed my grandmother, it stole my uh, grandfather's property, um, uh, you know, it, it nearly starved my mother to death, my father nearly died of diseases. I'm quite happy with the small ideas of this country, actually. Um, you know, this country and, and its suburbs and, and its silly uh, eccentric ideas. Um, so um, I... I I'm very, my, my, just very briefly, my mother was um, born in Berlin in 1933, which is, I have to be just as a Jewish tactical error. Um, and um, <laughs> she, uh, she was, m- m- my grandfather was, was a sort of um, archivist of everything that the Nazis were doing, which was the material that was ultimately used in the Nuremberg trials to, um, as, as evidence against uh, the defendants and, and also in Eichmann's trial. And he, he went to uh, 
to London to set a library up, um, this material which was used during the war. And my mother and her family didn't get out in time, so they, because the visas were sent for them, but it was too late. And And they were in... Belson. My mother was in Belson then, and um, also she was sort of part of the same community as Anne Frank, and they saw Anne Frank arrive in Belson. So um, that is ex- my grandfather's experience, and my mother's testimony has always been why I've taken. A, why I think truth is very important, and why I, I like to be involved in journalism and what I think the mission of journalism is. My father's experience was that he was um, he was born in a place called Lvov. And um, which is now in Ukraine, uh, but he was regarded as Poland uh, and um, spoke Polish, uh, although he now then lived here and regarded himself as British. But uh, when the Russians and Germans arrived outside Lvov at the same time and they surrendered to the Russians because the Germans they thought would kill all the Jews, which actually ultimately they did do. Um, but, uh, but by that point, my father and his grandfather had been arrested. My grandfather was in Starobelsk labour camp and my father was in a sort of Siberian prison village. And um, they ultimately uh, arrived in London. And that story is one of the reasons why I could never, I never belonged, you know, I was always like in the SDP or moderate and I didn't, would never belong to the left in a wholehearted way, um, you know, despite having sympathy with what is obviously an animating idea of people on the left, which is to be nice to everyone else. So, I mean, your, your grandfather is Alfred. He, he died when you were pretty young, about yeah. one or two. One, one and a half, So yeah. did the impact that he had come from things that were archived in the public domain, as yeah. opposed to, like, you know, round Shabbat dinner table or whatever yeah. it might well, be? Well, you know, the thing is that if you... My... my we talked a lot of politics uh, at home, uh, and we used to argue about a lot of things. And my parents, um, my father's now, now no longer alive, but um, my mother still is. And um, my politics is quite like theirs. It's quite pragma- pragmatic. It's certainly influenced by their experience. My grandmother um, used to say, um, while the Queen is safe in Buckingham Palace, I'm safe in Hendon Central. And that is a really good description of my politics. Um, so I put a lot of... Um, so I met somebody at the office once made some sort of comment about the bourgeois. It was a joke, I think. Um, and I said, you know, I actually belong to that group. And I think there's something quite honourable about it. Um, and so um, I, I'm always... Um, nervous of fanaticism, even fanaticism in favour of the positions that I hold. You know, I'm sure other people think I'm that fanatic. I'm sure they do. But, I, you know, I try uh, not to hold that. And that's... So you're, you're, I'm much more influenced by the kind of atmosphere of the family than I am by um, the specific things that my parents or grandparents did. So just to build on that atmosphere, uh, the atmosphere of the Jewish community is an interesting one. Uh, I personally feel in, in my role this year, albeit a, you know, just student union politics, there is a, there is a great pressure to raise, to, to basically represent and to, to bring the, the niche issues of the community into the public domain. Do you feel that in your, in your profession? Yeah, sure. And, um, uh, you know, we're obviously delicately stepping around Israel. Um, so uh, let me plunge in. Um, you know... I don't, I don't uh, want to go on about um, niche issues the whole time. Yep. Um, that would be to trap myself in my ethnicity. But on the other hand, one of the great pleasures of being Jewish 
is uh, an affinity with the community. So I always think that one of the most important things is to recognise that uh, the world is bigger than you, uh, and um, that uh, there is, and that, and then to recognise that there is a sort of community and a society. And what's nice about the Jewish community is that it's a real thing, right? I, can feel, I know who, exactly who I'm talking about yeah. when I talk about the Jewish community. I know people, they're not people I necessarily have met, but they're part of the Jewish community. And so I think I do have a duty to that group that's, that, that it's important to have those kind of feelings, that those people do belong to my sort of broader family. That's not to the exclusion of anybody else or to, ever to discriminate against anybody else. It's just a way of ensuring that you're not completely self-centred and absorbed in what you care about. So, yes, I think that because I've got this platform, um, that I do have responsibility to talk up for issues that other Jewish people are interested in too, and that includes Israel. You talked about the world being bigger than you. Is there a better place to learn that than LSE? <laughs> and, and was it your time here that kind of made you realise that? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think, it's a, I think the, most thing, the thing about LSE is it's impossible to go through the LSE, I think, or at least it was impossible for me, without being just immensely excited about all the arguments mm. and ideas there were in the world. And uh, to be at the, the other people that I was with, and I still you know, know lots of them and... Um, argue with them. I never failed to find those people interesting and engaged and I thought the student atmosphere was really amazing and actually I'm really proud to say that that remains the case when I meet people from LSE including with uh, Spare Your Blushes you um, that, that the place retains a, um, an immensely sort of exciting atmosphere of political ideas working their way out and social and intellectual ideas that exist in the student body and not just in the academic body and that's really really exciting I agree <laughs> to, to, to move on to the, the broader political world and, and your sure. experience in particular, um, I'm particularly interested in, in your relationship with George Osborne because when you, when in the early 90s you worked the Conservative Research Department and uh, maintained that you had a close relationship. But during the whole Levison inquiry, that was obviously brought up. And I've got here, he said... He said he, say, he, he occasionally provides good one-liners and jokes. Yeah. And occasionally not very good ones. Yeah, no, no, we're <laughs> all guilty of that. But the question of the relationship, was there anything more practical? Yeah, oh, no, it absolutely is. So I, um, back then, I worked for John Major originally as director of the Conservative Research Department and then after that for William Hague when he was leader of the Conservative Party. And so I was director of research for William Hague and he had a political secretary and the political secretary was George Osborne and we shared an office uh, for four years. And um, at the end of sharing office with someone after four years, you either hate them or you love them. And I love him. Uh, what can you do? Um, but I also happen to think he's a very interesting person and we share a lot of politics. We're socially liberal politically moderate, uh, economically dry. Um, so, um, you know, our politics is quite similar. Uh, and uh, we retained um, a relationship that means that I often discuss with him ideas. Yes, I provide, I'm, I've got this ridiculous thing which has now been uh, satirised by private eye, which is that politicians have asked me for one-line jokes. Partly because I used to do that for William Hague, is providing with jokes. Uh, which, and actually, the good thing about William Hague is he can tell a joke. But if you give a joke to a politician who can't tell a joke, it comes out as this deadly insult. And it's really awful. You can't tell somebody, I'm not going to give you a joke because you can't tell them. So you end up. But, it, uh, so it's a, but it's a slight. Anyway, so William Hague can do it. So people do ring me up. And now Private Eye has got this thing called the Coalition Academy. And uh, it has a running joke where 
David Cameron's character will will have an absolutely terrible pun. I mean, just completely unfunny. And in brackets, it'll say, thank you, Finkelstein D. Uh, <laughs> and of course, I'm sure that it's supposed to be biting satire. And I'm so egotistical that I really love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, well I, I, guess, I guess since we're talking about George Osborne, obviously with the, the budget yesterday. Sure. Play bingo much? Or... <laughs> no, it's, the bingo tax thing isn't for me. But the pension thing is... Um, so, I mean, the interesting thing... I remember I worked with George Osborne in the first week. I went home to my wife and I said, I'm not sure he's really very good. And about sort of three weeks later, um, I said to Nikki, oh, I can leave that to George. He'll do that speech. And she goes, I thought you said he wasn't any good. And I go, oh, no, he's really good. And so um, I, I, he's a very clever person. Uh, and um, this budget was very difficult because there's actually no room for manoeuvre. Essentially... One of the things about, which I think is sometimes a real problem with press reporting, so we, we, we report the things that change, but we don't report the things that don't change, the underlying things. So what was interesting about this budget is lots of things that have already been announced, which are incredibly controversial, which people here make, some people may agree with and won't, including, for example, a massive programme of public spending cuts, um, which is going to happen in the next year, and it, I think will be a part of the big part of the political atmosphere, but it's not being uh, talked about. But he had that in the background. He had to make a budget, nevertheless, that was, very, it was interesting. And to have thought, let's have a saving reform package and find things that are really worthwhile doing that are, in my view, liberating. Some people can take the view that they introduce moral hazard into the pension system. I, I happen to agree with them, but I can see why... You know, it's not that I can't see the alternative argument. But I thought it was a very clever, um, very well-constructed budget, and I was, I was in favour of it. And actually, for a change, there, is, there are things in that budget that are actually, for me, uh, as, it were, as it were, for, in other words, for middle-class professional earners, um, up, you know, well, in terms of upper earners... Um, which has, there haven't been so far. Sure. Uh, to bring it back to your personal political experience, when you were working with William Hague, obviously the 2001 general election is a difficult subject yeah. uh, with a net gain of one seat for the Conservatives. Yeah, which wasn't time. the one I was fighting. No. no. Um, <laughs> was, that, was the failure of Hague as a prospective PM more to do with the ascendancy of Blair still? Or was, yeah, it, was I mean, it more to do with his failings? No, well, it was a little bit of everything. So... I don't think the Conservative Party was ever going to win the 2001 election, but, but for very important reasons. So I know that everyone's discussing UKIP, but the big issue for the Conservative Party is this country is changing in lots of very good ways. It's becoming much more ethnically diverse. It's become much more socially liberal. Uh, the, you know, the middle classes are more mobile. It's part of the European Union. Uh, the methods of uh, communication have changed. The hierarchies are flattening. There's less trust in elites. Um, these are lots of things that are very challenging to the Conservative viewpoint. In some, in some ways, as challenging as what happened in, during the sort of decades of the 70s and 80s was to the to the socialist viewpoint. And the Conservative Party has to recognise that and it has to change in response to it and it has to have a message that's relevant. Um, you know, UKIP consists of people who, who think that's not necessary. But what's going to happen uh, to UKIP is over 20 years, those people are going to die. And I don't mean that in a bad way. They, all their membership, and all the, all, not all their membership, but all their support consists of people who are over 65 or probably over 70. Um, it's just people who are 
disillusioned and afraid of the process I've just talked about. Uh, and um, there's no future for conservatism in that. And during the period between 1997 and 2001, I think the Conservative Party didn't understand that. I didn't understand it completely myself. I did a little bit. But I didn't understand it completely. I've understood it much. I thought that 2001 eliminated from our inquiries the idea that the Conservative Party just needed to try harder and people would vote for it with a thicker pen. You know. um, but what happened was the same number of people voted for it with a thicker pen, but you don't get any extra votes for that. Uh, so um, I, it was a little bit William Hague's fault in the sense that, uh, and my fault as well as his advisor, that we didn't move on uh, properly. Um, but I think it was very hard, because I think Blair at that point was in the ascendancy. It was very funny. I was talking to someone the other day. In 1997, all the things that people do not like now about Tony Blair were totally obvious to me. They were blindingly obvious. I couldn't understand. And yet, on the day of the election of 1997, I was totally outside the national mood in respect of thinking. I thought, how can people think that's all genuine? Um, and the funniest thing has happened, which is that I quite like him now. Um, uh, and everyone else has come around to thinking that he's uh, not, not very genuine. And I sort of think there's quite a lot that's very authentic about him. Yeah. Um, so you're in the House of Lords now. Just to, so they, just so to shift the conversation me. more back to you <laughs> and, and what your personal ambitions are within the House of Lords. Because sure. it, it's a, maybe a lesser known fact you stood for candidacy, candidacy in, the, in the Commons a couple of times, yeah. four years after you left LSE. I'm quite intrigued as to what happened in those four years that really spurred you on to going for it straight. Was it Brent East you stood in? Yeah, so I, I, stood, I stood against Ken Livingstone for the SDP, and I, I was ludicrously young. And I, I do, I've got a letter from the, um, from the, the Citizens Advice Bureau. Uh, I couldn't drive, and I had to be driven everywhere by my mum. And the letter says, you know, dear Mr. Finkelstein, it was so good to see you yesterday, comma, and your mother, comma. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel completely absurd that I was running for Parliament. Actually, funny enough, the person who encouraged me to do it was Roy Jenkins. I said to him that I thought it was much too young to do it, and he'd run for Parliament at that age. And he said, no, you're not too young. But he'd been in the army, you know, and fought the war. So I, I felt a bit um, ridiculous. Um, but I did learn a lot. Uh, I, to be in the House of Lords is not something you, you plan for or think will happen, and it's a complete thunderbolt and also a tremendous privilege. Uh, and I'm at the stage now where I'm... I don't know whether anyone else has had this experience, but when you're in your first week in the job, you don't know what you're doing, but everyone knows you don't know what you're doing and you know you don't know what you're doing, so you feel perfectly comfortable. When you're four months into something, you still don't know what you're doing, but you worry that everyone thinks you do uh, and, that you, and so it's a profoundly disorientating time and that's the time I'm going through now. So I know how the House of Lords work, but I haven't yet... Um, worked out how to do something with what's been given to me. So the big issues that I'm... One of the issues that I'm really, really interested in is in miscarriages of justice. And um, I'm particularly interested that we're going through now um, the, uh, the fact that there are um, lots of court cases which seem to involve multiple charges... And everything that we know about um, the way that people think, the, the lessons that have been learned about um, uh, theories of behaviour in the last 10 years and 15 years, tells us this is very unsafe. It's very unsafe to, to try to try Bill Roach for six different offences which had no relationship with each other except for the fact that he um, was the person who was charged with them. So they were attempting to prop up one allegation with another unsubstantiated allegation, which is deeply unsafe. Now, in other cases, 
cases, um, there, there may have been what's called similar fact evidence. So compelling evidence which suggests that they, that they had the same method. You know, you might charge a burglar with five uh, charges because he always used, um, I don't know, blue tack to open the door or something like that. But this is actually being used quite commonly when that's not the case. And in particular, that's the case with sexual offences, where they simply try people with 25 charges. Um, but... Um, but who, some of those are brought along by the police spreading from one person who's made the allegation to the next, the nature of the allegation. So let's take, for example, um, the case against Max Clifford that's taking at the moment. It's very important to know whether or not, uh, in court, whether or not the issue uh, with Max Clifford is um, he's... Uh, he told everybody the same type of story, I'm like Charles Bronson or I'm, uh, I'm a friend of Julie Christie's, or whether the police prompted each of these people, um, did Max Clifford say anything about anybody famous? Those are the really important things. So I'm really, really interested in that. It's one of the things that I'm going to bring up in the House of Lords. And human rights, because, again, your maiden speech to the Lords was very much based yeah. or, or predicated on your, your family experience. And, and you mentioned when we were talking before about student politics here again if you so, could just flesh yeah, that so, I mean, look, in, uh, so um, the time that I was here was the, was the big moment for where gay rights was beginning to become a, a real issue and that's always been a really important issue to me um, and um, so 1980 was, the, was around that time where, where people were beginning to talk about something that hadn't been talked about people were beginning to say oh I'm gay and I was involved in a campaign for the general secretary for someone who was openly gay it was quite unusual at the time to do that um for the for him uh, you know the, he was the one with the courage not me um and um i you know i think we've made immense progress somebody was telling me this morning uh, that in their constituency he was a conservative mp he he had a thousand members and he lost 330 of them over uh, over gay rights and I just responded, well, at least we got uh, over gay marriage. And I said, well, at least we got gay marriage, which I think is actually the right response. But, um, but there's still a lot of places in the world where homosexuality is illegal. But, the, you know, the truth is that whereas I think that the House of Lords can do something about similar fact evidence and the rules of trials and things, its influence, it can give encouragement to dissent, to, to dissidents on, uh, in places like Uganda, where the laws are very repressive on Homosexuality, and we had a visit from one of the leading campaigners there. And, it's, and, and the House of Lords can really give those people encouragement, and that does actually matter. So I'm very concerned to do that. But obviously, there's a limit to how much you can, you know, Parliament can sure. do about that. I'm just going to wrap up from, from my end of things sure. with a couple of questions about your, the world of journalism. Uh, there'll be people, right. There are certainly people in here I know who work for the Beaver at the moment um, who will want to know about the route into journalism. And... and you know, because I, I'm not sure what it was like when you were graduating from here, and obviously it's not a route you went down straight away, but to get into journalism now is so competitive. So is there any advice you'd yeah. give to, well, to one of the... Uh, you know, I mean, don't do apps. what I did, probably. Um, the, I, I, mean, I, I got into journalism totally by accident through politics, and then I became a leader writer, and it's not really a, um, not really a route for anybody. But I, I think... Uh, my view is that there's a great future for journalism, and... Um, that uh, there's still a lot of money in publishing information because we're in, in the information era. Uh, but obviously, there's a massive technological revolution which is altering, which is going to alter publications. And um, one of the key things is that video is going to be very big. So I suppose if I was going to give one piece of practical advice, it is um, to 
to learn something about uh, uh, video publication. Um, and then the other thing is um, that this is true of almost everything. Uh, if you want something, just be really, really persistent about it and don't ever give up. The, p- the, the, the things that I've done in my career have happened because I just like, I've never given up on certain things that I've really wanted to do. And I've been determined to try to earn my living on the things that I love, uh, which has actually, you know, which has uh, come about. And I don't think it's really to do with any great ability I've had in those areas, but just by sheer determination to do it. And um, sometimes when people want to become journalists, they're quite half-hearted about it. But I think actually, uh, and they think they can't do it, and they give up. And you are actually, in that way, your own best friend and your own worst enemy. I think persistence is incredibly important. Sure. Okay, well, thank you very much. Uh, I'm now going to open it up to questions from the audience, and I'm sure there'll be quite a few. Have we got mics? Gentlemen at the front. Here. By the way, if anyone asks any annoying questions, we, had, we do have um, guidance to chairing public meetings in the event of disorder <laughs> to help us. I'll say that. In terms of the newspaper, the Times... Could you tell me if there's a, or how much influence is there uh, from the ownership on sure. the editorship? Okay. So um, I think there are two parts to this answer. The, edit- the owner picks the editor. So um, there's no doubt that the overall worldview of the Times um, is established to some extent by the owner's selection of the editor. Uh, and... Um, Generally, the Times, uh, under this owner, has been an Atlanticist, free market um, newspaper. Uh, it, it hasn't had a party affiliation particularly because it supported Tony Blair. It supported, then it, and then it, in one election it didn't support anybody. It's moved about, uh, but it has sort of had a consistent cadre of ideas. Uh, so in that way, the owner has been critical. But I w- I've been writing editorials for the Times for... Uh, 12 years, and in that time, the number of occasions on which the owner has expressed a view to me about anything I should write an editorial is none, uh, ever. Uh, and in fact, one of the reasons for that is he's like too busy. So um, he lives in another continent and he's, he doesn't know what's going in our editorial. He couldn't care less a lot of the time. Um, but it's also a recognition that it wouldn't be proper uh, for him to do that. The, the Times has got, uh, legal, he's got legal obligations not to do that. Uh, but I've never felt that he was about to either. Um, so quite a lot of the sort of feeling about the role that he has in um, what we're doing is a bit of a sort of conspiracy theory. Uh, it's not that the... I, I, I personally, you know, he owns the paper and he's put £20 million a year in at times when we've had big losses, which we don't have now, but we have had. Uh, so I think he's entitled to express his opinion. Um, but he doesn't actually do that on a day-to-day um, basis. And, I, you know, I've never... Ha- I, actually, in, in all the time that I've done it, I've once had a communication from anybody in the Murdoch family about a column which was after I'd done it, uh, after I'd written a column, James Murdoch, when he was chief executive, rang me up and said he liked the column. And that was it. Well, that's it. That's the point I'm making. So, the the uh, you know the 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 last editor, um, James Harding, whom I adored. Um, I think he probably partly Rupert changed the editor partly because they didn't see eye to eye on a number of things, but um, it was also to do with their personal trust and uh, the finances of the paper. It wasn't only politics. Um, 
But the shift in the paper's politics hasn't been huge. There are a lot of hands going up, so if we can just wait until I've kind of picked someone that would be fair and great. Right at the back, uh, gentleman there. Yeah. Thank you. Very interesting. Um, I'm simply a visitor to the LSE, so I don't have any stake in the LSE as such. Um, I was uh, somewhat uh, uh, taken up by remark. You remarked you, that you made that you didn't think much of LSE students sending a uh, resolution to uh, uh, to, to uh, uh, Russia to Putin. I think uh, quite the reverse. I think this place is very international. It has people from uh, Russia, from Ukraine, and from all over the world. And I think if this, if, you, if your union makes a comment, I think it is perfectly uh, uh, valid, and uh, it should, you should continue doing this kind of thing. Um, yes. Um, so, I mean, it's not a, I'm not asking a question, but I'm just making a remark. No, it's, that, it's, it's an interesting comment. I, I mean, I, you have to, I have to say that in my particular thank case... You. Uh, my, thank you very much. In my particular case, um, the LSE was much more inclined to be telling... Um, to be sending an, uh, a letter in my era to Vladimir Putin telling him to invade the Crimea. Uh, so um, uh, I think that the point is that, uh, that it's fine for the student union to have strong debates on topics, um, but sometimes I felt uh, that it became so focused on its role as, uh, as an expression of the international solidarity of mankind that it, you know, it forgot how to sell coffee to students in the bar. That's basically what I was uh, yeah. talking about. It's a balancing act, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, hi, Daniel. Hello. Um, just you talked about your um, change from first you started out as, as Labour um, and then you move slowly towards the Conservatives. I mean, at what point did you realise that 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 was where your where you wanted to be and wanted to stay? Well, all all um, all politics is about having coalitions um, with other people that you don't agree with. And you know, one of my points to UKIP uh, with UKIP is um, anybody can do what they're doing, which is get fifteen percent of the vote. It's not actually an achievement. The point is to try to form a government. Uh, and you have to, to do that. You have to compromise with people you don't agree with. Um, otherwise, um, because not everyone agrees with me, unfortunately. Uh, so, um, so the question was, what coalition would I be most comfortable in? And, over a lot, and I had to make a decision about that over a long period of time. Uh, and um, when the SDP collapsed in particular, I had to make that decision. And I... I'd, I I've got great amount of sympathy with... I've always had a lot of sympathy with the um, civil liberties position of some people on the left and a lot of respect for it. And also I thought that, although it hasn't... Though, the, though quite a lot of progressive reforms, say, for example, votes for women or the Factory Acts, um, have come out of the Conservative movement, a lot of important reforms also, like the National Health Service, but in particular um, gay rights, you know, which I said was very important, uh, and um, an emphasis on women's and racial equalities in the modern era has come out of the Labour movement. And I, you know, recognise and respect the left, uh, but I, my overarching thing was I felt they keep running out of money. Every Labour government seems to keep running out of money, which, which has happened again. Um, I, I do, do excuse me, because for some people who don't share this view, it might be annoying, and I don't mean to be annoying, but I'm just explaining my own position, so forgive me. Um, th- I, that was what influenced me. I, I was... Um, 
I'm interested in the practicalities of how you achieve uh, you know, stable public services and a, and, a, and a decent welfare state on some sort of economically sustainable footing. And uh, in their anxiety to be generous, uh, I'm afraid I think repeated Labour governments have um, failed in that fundamental task. And I just decided, well, I'm... My, I'm I've got problems uh, with the politics of John Redwood and problems with the politics of Joan Ruddock, but I think John Redwood's a better ally. Gentleman in blue shirts over there. There's a mic coming. Good evening, Danny. It seems to me that we have a paradox where we were in the era of globalisation. In Britain, for the political and business elite, there's more and more localism within central London. How do, as a country, how does the metropolitan business and political elite engage with the broader country again? Well, one of the things that we need in this country is another big city. Um, uh, we, we ought to make, as a, as a major thrust of public policy, to build Manchester into a second city that's big enough in relation to, uh, to, to London, um, which, it, which it isn't, and, uh, you know, which it shows the promise to be, because it's an incredible place, I think. Uh, and um, so that, all, you know, one of the reasons why I'm so strongly in favour of HS2, and I know there's this argument, oh, if you have HS2, it'll suck people from the north down to the south, you know, which seems to me an argument for, like, closing the motorway. Uh, so um, so I, 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 I'm not... Uh, so I think that's the first answer, um, is that we shouldn't have a metropolitan elite only in, in one place, which gradually drifts away. Um, secondly, uh, I think we have to recognise that the forces of technology are going to increasingly shift money from the... Um, from particularly from low-skilled workers to high-skilled workers, but also to the owners of capital from the, uh, and away from people who merely work uh, for capital. And, and this is a difficult problem. It's, it's creating a real uh, inequality that's not created by governments, but created by secular forces. And we have to think about... Um, how we organise our economy in order to avoid that happening. In particular, how do we encourage people to gain the education scientific and creative, particularly combinations of science and creativity, that allow us to um, have a more broadly prosperous population. Because what I do feel fear is a population in which um, everybody's got jobs, but some people are very wealthy and other people are not, are not, are not at all wealthy. They're working, they're basically cleaning the houses of uh, the very wealthy people. And that's not a, that's not a, a sustainable economy, particularly if, like me, you uh, hold a lot of faith in the ballast of the suburban middle class. Great, thanks. Joe, we Hello, I'm an undergraduate student here at LSE. Um, you spoke for your distaste in big ideas, but we all sort of know that there are more big ideas than just Nazism or communism. You said you're kind of quite pro-small ideas, and you also spoke about your uh, joy over yesterday's budget, seemingly because you got nice things out of it, um, <laughs> as sort of like upper middle class. Is it... Is it a problem that to say that we like small ideas is basically just to say that we're happy to screw over the poor? No, it's brilliant, brilliant, bracy, by the way. Um, so, um, uh, but not entirely accurate. Um, uh, so, I, I'm um, one of the reasons I put it the way that I did is that I'm a 
profound gradualist. There, there was a fantastic, this is an analogy, but there's a fantastic, I'm not even sure it's not an apocryphal tale, but it's very good. Jacob Epstein was doing a bust of Ernest Bevin, the great trade union leader, and somebody was saying, how do you uh, create a bust of Bevin? And he said, I take a piece of stone and I chip away all the things that don't look like Bevin. Um, which I thought was absolutely brilliant, although when I put this in the paper, somebody said that uh, Epstein worked in brass and that wasn't possible, but still, uh, let's leave that to one side. Um, that's a very good description of my political method. Uh, I'm, I'm not against trying to achieve ambitious things, and I am, you know, I'd like to think that I was concerned, as you are, about people who, who are not well off or people who are oppressed, uh, people who, whose human rights are, are transgressed, uh, people who find themselves in difficult positions economically, people who are powerless. I have exactly the same feeling, strength of compassion and feeling that you do. Um, but what, we, what I'm, we may differ on is um, how quickly uh, we, may, we think we're able to sweep away uh, institutions in order to do something about it. I believe, in, uh, I believe that you have to chip away at the problems, always trying to create a better uh, situation than you did before. I'm quite sceptical of big schemes, which can often go wrong, uh, and um, I'm nervous about them. Uh, and um, that's not because I'm sort of, you know, complacent about the current situation, but because you've always got to think, am I making something better or am I making it worse? So there's a real questions over political method, which don't, which don't uh, divide, just divide left and right. There's, they're a question of um, sensibility or sort of a political method. Uh, and, I, you know, I, I put a lot of uh, faith behind moderation. And it's not very, um, it's not a very sort of... Uh, um, Good thing to, or you know, popular thing to say, particularly to call yourself a moderate. But I, you know, that is a very important part of my politics. There's a, a sort of certain a small c conservatism, but I never wanted to be. Um, I never want that to be um, a, a sort of complacent or stand pat position. But it does mean that you've got to be cautious and practical and ensure and pragmatic and ensure that you improve the situation. The problem with the with a lot of the big ideas of the left is that either incredibly, and the right actually, but let's take the left, you know, if I've correctly defined where you're, where you're asking that question from, they're incredibly um, enthusiastic, but they're either unbelievably abstract so that it's impossible to know what they actually mean at all and what sort of social arrangements they're in favour of, or they actually end up becoming incredibly oppressive uh, as they require people to behave in ways they're not capable of. They don't recognise that, uh, you know, people are acquisitive, for example. Uh, so I hope that's something that answers your question. There's a lot of questions, so I'm going to ask two this time. Uh, first, the gentleman in the second row and the lady on the fourth row. Thank you. As somebody sir, who loves uh, politics and is interested in politics, do you find it sad that there's so much attention these days on our committees in Parliament and the select committees and the special committees rather than the chamber itself? I'm old enough to remember Enoch Powell bemoaning the fact that attention was being taken away from Parliament. And one thinks of the great orators of our uh, you know, the, in, in the sort of past that we, we remember and know about, Winston Churchill and Margaret Thatcher and, and, and many others, uh, I can't quite envisage them making their mark so much in the committees. And I've, I find it sad that the whole attention now, or so much of the attention, particularly on television, is on the committees and not on the chamber, apart from question time. How do you feel about that, please? And the second question. Oh, right. Was it me? 
Yeah, yeah, you once wrote very movingly about your father's side and their experiences under the Soviets. But if I remember right, your article was stressing how little awareness there was of what had happened under the Soviets. Mm. Now, I hope this isn't too big an idea for you. But do you think that the Soviet history of brutality is relevant to Russian politics today? And is the West a bit naive? Mm. Okay, well, they're obviously two completely different uh, questions, so I'll deal with them in the order they were asked. Um, Well, uh, quite a lot of parliamentary scrutiny is quite poor, is one of the discoveries I've made. There's an awful lot of of bills that go through Parliament. And because the executive uh, sits in Parliament and is dependent upon the confidence of Parliament to remain as the executive, uh, they tend to... um, Almost every vote that takes place on anything, however small, is regarded as a vote of confidence, uh, which means that... um, which means that things go through without being properly scrutinised. And it's the reason why you have, a, I think, it is a slightly absurd arrangement, but actually it's the, one of the few things that actually does work, um, why the Lords is re- revising legislation. And it's a pretty picture we've got ourselves into in which the best arrangement we can have to revise legislation is an unelected chamber. Um, so uh, uh, I think that... Um, insofar as they've moved to these committees, actually it's probably a move that's in the right direction in favour of um, more uh, debate and discussion of um, detailed matters uh, and therefore doing things that really matter rather than making big speeches at each other. Just on the subject, today I, 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 one of the things that you can do if you're a peer is go to the um, House, there's a bench to sit in the House of Commons to watch the debates. And there was a tribute debate to Tony Benn and I went to watch it. Um, and um, I wanted to watch Hilary Benn give a speech. And, I, and it was a very moving occasion. He was absolutely brilliant, his speech. And I, I, I really don't um, think it's the case that, you know, there used to be these great orators um, and now the people are pygmies. Uh, I think the people that, quite a lot of the people in the House of Commons are, you know, very brilliant um, speakers. And so um, I think it was, uh, you know, it's quite uh, nostalgic to believe that, that, it was, that it used to be... Um, you know, so brilliant. And, you know, the problem with Enoch Powell is, for all his brilliance, he was like a racist, actually, is that when it really boils down to it. And so I find it difficult to admire all that um, great intellect that he had, because I thought it was put into a rear into service of something really bad. Yeah. Um, so then, um, on the question of um, Soviet. the Soviets, uh, you know, it always used to upset my father, I think, that uh, people didn't recognise the... Um, the scale of um, Soviet murder. And there's a, I read a, bit, a brilliant book recently called Stalin's Hangmen, which just basically page after page after page um, consists of all the people they killed. Uh, and usually that also consisted of killing each other. So people would become head of the KGB, and two pages later there'd be a new head of the KGB, and they'd kill, they'd kill the previous one. It was almost... And you could think, how would you... If you had any understanding of probability, how would you take the job of head of the KGB? You're going to die. You're going to die. It's like completely obvious. It's like one of those mafia films where you thought, well, don't do that. You're going to get killed in the next scene. Uh, so um, the, the, the book's incredible. Obviously, when you read the scale of that, it's wrong to compare Vladimir Putin to that. I think he wishes that he had that kind of power, but he, he doesn't. Um, and he's not... Um, 
a criminal on that scale. Um, but there's no doubt that um, the desire of Russia to retain a kind of grip on its sphere of influence and the influence around it and the desire of um, places to be part of modern Europe is one of the issues at stake here. So my father was brought up a pole. Um, in, in the, on the sideboard in my parents' house is, Marshall, is a clock of Marshal Pilsudski, the Polish head of the Second Republic, on horseback, uh, which, which plays the Polish anthem on the hour, if you don't switch it off, um, which we do. Um, but, uh, and my father regarded himself as a Pole. And it was only when I was like, at the LSE, I think, that I discovered that where he lived was no longer Poland, because at Yalta it had been moved into uh, Ukraine and Ukraine had become part of the Soviet Union. And those people wanted at the time uh, what we actually fought the Second World War to give them, uh, which was membership of modern free Europe. Uh, And um, in that way, we actually lost part of the Second World War in a way that I think people don't really acknowledge. They wanted that and they still want that. And I think it's our responsibility to stand up for it. And I'm a bit depressed by the extent to which we we don't. Yes, I think we're quite naive about Putin. I'm afraid that uh, what's happening now is a consequence of what happened in what happened over Syria. Um, whether you know there are lots of arguments for what we did and didn't do in Syria, but Putin got the message from that that Obama creates red lines and he doesn't um, mind if you cross them. Okay, I'm going to take two, two more again. Uh, first of all, the gentleman on the on the edge of yeah, just that yeah. And then the lady at the back, in the black jumper. Uh, thank you, uh, Lord Frankenstein. I'm sorry if I don't mispronounce your... That's fine. That's you. You're in very good company, I promise you. Uh, please excuse me. Would it, would it be correct to describe your stance and views as reactionary <laughs> when it comes to issues concerning Arabs and specifically the Palestinians? and also your stance on the invasion of Iraq. You, like all other Western media, choose to write selectively about uh, the, uh, ignore the American-inspired uh, invasions of, and what's happening in Venezuela. You, cho- you choose not to mention the role uh, by the Israeli mercenaries in the uh, genocide in Sri Lanka, and also in Colombia. Thank you. But see, uh, I was a bit uh, amused that your, your speech was interspersed with hilarity and jokes. We are coming here expecting to hear something substantial. Thank okay. you. Okay, and so I'm, I'm going to still ask the second question, but try and make it a question. Okay. Uh, thank you very much. It was very enlightening. Uh, your speech, but uh, I have a question. Uh, since you mentioned that your father is a Pole and you lost your uh, uh, the ancestral home in the Cressy area, um, and you were in a position to write about it here in Britain, uh, I was just wondering, what is the silence about? Because I used to come from India. I have researched the, uh, the trail of the Polish refugees who, from Cressy who reached India and received succor there. And uh, I've had a lot of, uh, I mean, resistance because no one would believe that such a thing had happened. And it's always worried me that why Britain with the civil society, open society, never discussed that subject. Thank sure. you. 
Okay, so let me try and answer your, uh, your passionately put uh, perfectly reasonable questions. You know, I, I mean, obviously, if you're asking me, would I like my politics to be described as reactionary? Of course not. Um, let, let me try and answer you uh, on the question of, of Israel, and um, I'll try and do, do so on the Iraq war, although they are completely separate subjects. Uh, I realise you link them, uh, but then they're, they're nothing to do with each other, really. Um, I, when my mother left Belson, she was um, able to come to America because my grandfather was building this archive. But the people that she was in Belson with um, went sailing round and round Marseille Harbour because they had nowhere to go. Uh, and the United Nations decided that there needs to be a home somewhere for the Jewish people to live. Uh, and that was an act of compassion and necessity. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, it had been conceived out of the pogroms that happened and out of not the Nazi uh, war, and it had to be somewhere. And I'm afraid the experience of the Jewish people has been that wherever it was, people weren't going to be that keen on it. Uh, um, and um, it was placed... Uh, in, uh, in Palestine, and a two-state solution has always been available. And my view um, of it is that when the moment comes that people are willing to accept the, uh, a two-state solution, um, then such a thing uh, will come about. Uh, that the solution to the, to the Middle East is pretty simple. It's for people to stop killing each other. Uh, and um, the land solution is not a very difficult one to work out. What we've got to work out is the willingness of people to, ele- to allow Israel to exist. Now, there are also people in Israel um, who don't believe in a, in a two-state solution, uh, who have the view that you describe as reactionary uh, on, um, towards Arabs, and I don't share their opinion. I think that they're completely wrong, uh, and I'm very happy to say that. I think that... Um, the decision to hold on to the territories in 1967. I understood why it was done strategically from a military standpoint. It's been a political disaster, uh, and it's been a disaster for the people who live there. Um, But um, my view is born out of um, a a sort of stubborn insistence that there has to be a homeland for Jewish people somewhere in the world, uh, and that that's the place where it is, uh, and that it can't now be removed without those people being murdered, and I'm not prepared to see that happen. but you and I can have then many, many civilised discussions about how we achieve human rights and freedom and democracy for all the people who live there, which must be our joint desire. Now, then there's the question of... Then there's the question of... Um, then there's the, there's the question of the Iraq war, which is much more divisive. So what you're referring to is the position that I took, um, that we had entered into a war in the Gulf War, that Saddam Hussein had made certain conditions, certain peace... Um, Conditions, and that he um, and the, the main condition was that he would cease to um, to try to build nuclear weapons and to have a nuclear weapons program. Uh, and he refused to provide, and he refused to provide the reassurance that he was doing that. Now we've learnt a lot of lessons about that, which which pertain to the way the intelligence services. Um, mistook the situation. Some people think it was a lie. I personally think it's extremely unlikely, for example, that Tony Blair would have decided to go to war based on a lie that he knew would be discovered when the troops arrived there, um, because they would find there were no no weapons of mass destruction. So he obviously believed that there were. um, But actually, even without that, I happen to think that removing Saddam Hussein was a good thing. Uh, I can't... uh, Can I... Sorry? I didn't have the pleasure. <laughs> can, can I? Sorry, can I ask? We do have a so, back and forth. We've no, got no, a lot so, of questions. Yeah, I, 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 I have guidelines. Not afraid to use them. <laughs> no. Uh, well, look, I don't. I don't. Um, 
I don't have a problem in saying that I think Saddam Hussein was one of the worst murdering dictators of the last 30 years. Uh, you can't, I mean, whatever disagreement we might have, and there's lots of disagreements, you know, I'm certainly on the minority side. I understand that in my view on the Iraq war. Uh, and I'm totally willing to engage in debates with people about whether it was a strategic error. And some people might think it was a strategic error with horrible human consequences. We can have an argument about that. But one thing we cannot possibly have an argument with is about the nature of Saddam Hussein and the fact that the world is better off without him and his murderous sons. It, it was terrible uh, what he did. And, uh, and, um, and he was, um, you know, a, an awful and terrible the murderous individual, which we're better, whom we're better off without. Now, um, the issue of the silence on polls. So I used to have my hair cut in a place called Hendon's... Um, you'll excuse the fact this is a joke, which I know you don't like. But the, um, the, the, um, I used to have my hair cut in a place called Hendon's Most Hygienic Barber. And I only understood why I had it when I saw Hendon's Second Most Hygienic Barber. Um, but he, he, was, he was very angry, this guy. And he was a Cypriot who was extremely angry about the situation in Cyprus. And he, you knew that I worked for William Hague. And he kept wanting me to tell William Hague what was happening there. Cut my hair with more and more anger. But the first time that I met him, I... Didn't, well, I, I missed when he told me whether he was a Greek or Turkish Cypriot. Uh, it was very embarrassing, so I actually didn't know which side of this dispute he was angry on behalf of. Uh, and most people on most foreign affairs problems are a bit like that. Uh, they're really not that knowledgeable or, or interested in those things, even, unfortunately, things that happen in this country. Um, so I, I would urge you to think we have actually surprisingly a lot of debate in this country about foreign affairs, considering how distant it is from most people's comprehension or understanding, and that other people's passionately held foreign policy problems, including my own, often pass people by completely. Now, I always think in the case of the Israeli-Palestine issue, which engages the two of us uh, in, uh, you know, in, in passionate and important debate, and for a lot of people, it's completely irrelevant, and they don't know which side I'm on as they cut my hair. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Look, look, look. I, I, understand. I think I tried to give you a full answer. Daniel. I couldn't with other people. Have, have I, I understand there are passions about politics. I understand this is the LSE where we make statements and not questions. But there are a lot of people who want to be heard tonight. So I have respect for them and the event. Can I just ask that you don't keep interjecting? The, the lady at the back next to you on your right, Lily. I was just interested to know what your objective is in reviewing the um, miscarriages of justice in relation to Bill Roach, Max Clifford, etc. Particularly, uh, so I guess what's behind my question is, you know, we recently had a ruling where the Met paid damages in the War Boys case against rape victims yep. who weren't heard. So, are you going to look at miscarriages that never got to court? And yep. is what's behind it really a level of incompetence in the criminal justice system? And how do we address that? gradually or however you sure. choose to grad do it. One Thank question, you. One more question. Yeah, sure. yeah, lady at the front. Thank you. Um, you mentioned that you were very... Um, we wanted to see sustainable public services that are obviously um, cost-effective, value for money. Um, there's clearly there are a lot of challenges that face us in developing, because of the changing demographic and all sorts of other issues, um, in developing those sorts of services. When we have the debate in this country... Um, we get a lot of vested interests putting their views and a lot of ideological views being expressed. So it's very difficult to have a, for there to be a debate which actually really looks at the issues in a, in a rational way where you can really understand and come to some decisions. How do you think we can improve that situation so that we can have a, a higher level of debate and come to some good answers? Mm. 
Okay. Um, it, it's very important, the point that you're putting, because um, one of the things that I'm, you know, I think, uh, I think is very important when dealing with this issue of similar fact evidence and multiple, multiple cases is not to stray to the area of um, uh, underestimating the quantity of uh, sexual abuse that we've now, we're now beginning slowly to appreciate has taken place. Uh, and one of the things these court cases have demonstrated is that behaviour that I think people tolerated, um, have tolerated in lots of circumstances, have, uh, are um, now revealed as criminal behaviour. And possibly people are reading this case is thinking, I've witnessed uh, behaviour like that, and I didn't appreciate it was actually criminal in this way. Um, so I don't. I think it's very. This is why these are very. It's a very sensitive issue. The issue of um, similar facts, evidence, and multiple cases. And I have to step very carefully in it. But um, so that sort of answer part of your question. But I know the other part of it was the question of of competence in the criminal justice system. You know, the more that you study it, the more you realise the people involved in it are only human. They're making human errors. Um, but that's bad, right? In other, words, in other words, I've rid myself of a naive view that they weren't that. Um, and I've begun to understand that they, um, that, uh, they sort of... Um, that there are mistakes that have... That, that for example, the CPS is not um, some sort of all-seeing... Um, uh, carefully a calibrating organisation but a human one that kind of you know decides well it's not going to be defeated by David Lee Travis so they'll try him again on an issue or will make the sort of mistake that you said was made in the war boys trial and the police in Rochdale so this is one of the things that the Times has been exposing you know who repeatedly failed to, to uh, in a tragic way and I mean one of the things that happened is they they one of the girls who'd been abused kept all of her clothing which, which was evidence in a court case, all of the clothing which was evidence of, uh, of the abuse, and the police lost the evidence. It's not a really shocking thing. So as I've got into this more, I've realised that the sort of human error, which I'd very naively not really appreciated fully, was, was involved in the criminal justice system, how pervasive that is, if that's an answer to your question. Um, now, it's the question of sustainable public services. It's amazing to me how, how little interested we are and whether the things that we do in Parliament actually work um, so that um, whether or not we, it actually improves services uh, and, whether, and how we judge whether they can be improved and it doesn't seem to me part of legislation which it ought to be to ensure that we try things out and see whether they worked before continuing them uh, and once you've passed and, and we have a system in which everybody's incredibly invested in what they do. So the worst thing you can do in politics is a U-turn. Um, but actually, U-turns are incredibly important intellectually. It's when you realise that you've learned from your experience and you're, you have the courage to think, I'm going to do something different. And in politics, we make that very, very painful. I don't actually have a solution completely to it, but I think one part of the solution um, has got to be to try to include in legislation more measures of... Um, of whether it works in its own terms. In other words, the legislation is supposed to achieve certain things. Did it actually achieve those things? Setting itself targets and seeing whether those targets were achieved. Um, the problem is that those things are so embroiled with people's personal politics and that, that people persist with um, boasting that something worked, even years after it's apparent that it didn't. It's, it is a very difficult question. I'm going to take a final batch of three questions before we bring the event to a close. The lady in the middle with a gold necklace. I'm a really bad David Dimbledy, Dennis. Uh, Dennis, after that. And you've had your hand up for ages. So. 
Should I start? Yeah. Thank you very much. It's been a really interesting evening. Um, I have a question. I'm actually also the daughter of... Uh, sorry, I am the daughter of a Holocaust survivor, and our mothers, are, in fact, were in Bergen-Belsen at the same time. Right. Um, I believe that you've been appointed on the Holocaust Commission, yes. and I just want to know what you hope will be achieved through the Holocaust Commission and um, what the goals are and how you see your role. Well, um, so... I. The Prime Minister has established a, a commission to um, consider both commemoration uh, of the Holocaust and uh, Holocaust education in a period after the, the survivors are alive. So my mother, who still can speak about her experiences in schools and everything, she's 81. Um, and, or 81 this year, actually, she's 80 now. Um, and so... Um, that's the job of the Holocaust Commission, and I've actually been put on uh, the education working group of the Holocaust um, Commission. So we've yet to meet, and, uh, and uh, uh, but I have my own idea of what would be a good thing for Britain to be. I think uh, that we, can, uh, we should attempt to be one of the centres of Holocaust study in the world. Uh, so America consists of one of those centres. Israel has a centre. But we have, have the facility of the Wiener Library, partly my grandfather's archive. We've built upon it. And we've got um, uh, the, uh, the museum, the Imperial War Museum, and the archive that is there. And I think uh, together we could create, uh, in this country, one of the places where uh, study of the Holocaust is, um, is at its strongest in the world. And we could finance that properly and ensure that... It, and ensure that um, scholars from all over the world who want to come and study will come and study it here. Come and study here. That's one of my objectives on the commission. But there are others. So uh, I know that there are some people who question whether or not it would be quite a good idea to have a Holocaust museum. But then other people say, well, we've got one of those actually at the Imperial War Museum. We've got one of those in in Washington, and the kind of costs involved wouldn't make that a good idea. Um, so I I tend to go into these things with a specific objective because otherwise you get lost in lots of ideas so that's what I've decided I'm going to uh, try and pursue through this process. Dennis. Yeah you mentioned uh, your campaigning whilst you were at LSE against no platform policy and we in fact uh, voted down a no platform motion in the UGM earlier this year one of the results of which was that yesterday we had George Galloway speaking in the afternoon. And I just wondered what you made, given the, your history of campaigning for freedom of speech, of the fact that the university itself actually um, banned people from protesting against that, up to and including threatened to, uh, threatening to expel students who protested against George Galloway. Well, um, it depends what kind of protest they wanted to mount. I, I think the university would be correct to take disciplinary action that prevented people from doing things that would have uh, affected his right to free speech. Um, because uh, he's got a right to make his speech, his make his make his points. Um, he's a lovely man. Takes a keen interest in the Jewish people, um, and um, uh, uh, he. Um, uh, I. I, um, I think that. Um, He's a good illustration of it. You know, it's uh, in a place of learning and exchange and debate. Um, his ideas have got some role, and people should engage with them. Um, and um, if you feel that the best form of engaging with George Galloway is a protest, and I can understand why that's the case, because, you know, I've tried um, more civilised forms of interaction with him, not as successful as one might hope. Um, and um, so I can understand why somebody might think that a placard that expressed your view might be successful, at a, although 
frankly, I'm not sure that it would be worth the investment of time, because um, um, he's not changing his mind. But if you wanted to make a broader uh, democratic and political point, that's fine. Um, but I think if the, if the institution was concerned to protect his right to make, um, to make a speech, that's a reasonable use of the, of the institution's power, because you don't want to infringe his right to free speech through yours. But I, So I think it's good. I'm delighted to hear that you haven't got a no-platform policy. Um, I'm pleased... To, that someone like George Galloway can come and speak here, even if I profoundly, you know, there's no one I more profoundly disagree with. Um, but, um, but, and I, but I don't think um, the freedom of speech extends to using it to shout someone down because that sort of defeats itself. Um, but civilized, um, civilized behaviour that um, that makes your point in in a way that you think. Um, either protects vulnerable people or promotes an idea, that's perfectly reasonable, if that's an answer. Thanks. And finally. Uh, thank you for an engaging evening. The media, the newspaper media, are at a rather ghastly, dumbed-down low point, um, according to many of my friends. Um, is this, would you care to comment on this? And is this because they're struggling for profit? And I'm told that the young are still getting good public opinion through the online systems. Yeah. Do you know, my, my answer to that question is I think it's completely wrong. <laughs> I know that everyone thinks that... Uh, I don't think there's ever been a moment in, um, in where, where, the, where the media, which is in the broadest sense uh, available to people, has been full of more information than it is now. You know, I can read The New Yorker and The Economist. The Times is a much, much richer... Uh, Paper, and I'll tell you the reason why. Is somebody made this joke the other day that um, it takes you uh, 20 seconds to find out how old Judy Dench is. Um, so uh, let me give an example. When I was writing my article about Ukraine, I was able to dis- to discover the spelling of the name of the pres- of the Polish president in exile who used to send my grandmother flowers. I could, I knew, I could, uh, I didn't know who it was. I could find the date when he must have been doing it, and I knew who it was and how to spell his name. A piece of information that was totally um, beyond me gaining it, and I was able to put that in the paper. The quality of what we're able to produce and the speed with which we're able to produce it makes um, modern media incomparably more informative uh, and um, and a richer experience. The sheer scale of what you're able to uh, to get if you want to read those things uh, is incomparably greater you can read um, every library uh, note of the House of Commons online um, at, on any expert subject. You can read every statement of the International Monetary Fund. You can subscribe to Foreign Affairs and get an article of any archive at any point in history. When I wanted to, um, to, to write articles about the Olympics, I read every article that had ever appeared in the New Yorker about the Olympics, which was a description of every Olympics all the way uh, through. And I bought... On, from a second-hand bookshop online, a copy of um, a history of the Olympics, which was out of print. Um, and uh, so there's this idea that um, we're less knowledgeable and we have less information, but there's never the human knowledge has never been greater. It's, we've never been more self-confidently able to, to grasp all this data and information, and the only thing that I run out of is the time to absorb it all. Okay, well, thank you very much for that. And I'm sure on behalf of everyone at LSE and LSE Students Union, we'd like to thank you for taking the time to come speak to us. Thank you.